she was gold. A two-doored sedan with flip-up headlights and T-tops that led in the sky. She had cowprint-covered seats, a tape deck that was never not in use, a rewind feature missing a button that built up a callus on my finger, and a broom handle in the trunk named Jimmy Pickerupper. Her glove compartment was Velcro-taped in place, and she had a button that, when pushed, didn't do anything. A button, we joked, would eject us through the open roof in an emergency. Her windshield wiper squirters could be pushed sideways, allowing me to spray idling cars, passing bikers, and unlucky pedestrians. She was temperamental, broke down every other week, and was lovingly referred to as the bomb. Her undercarriage was completely rusted, and I'm shocked that I never fell through the floor. She let us ride around like wild maniacs, moronic youth, donuts in parking lots, street races on Saturday nights. Her interior was so cramped it felt like piloting some underwater submersible as I explored previously uncharted territories. When it rained, it sounded like we pushed through the open seas like a boat upon the waves. She was towed away from my parents' house one day after a year of unuse. Unable to function anymore on the open road, her current role a home for a bee's nest, and when she was pulled away, in a final act of defiance of which she excelled, she sent the bees swarming around the driver and our neighborhood as a final goodbye in the form of a loving middle finger to us all. A warning, and a request. Don't forget me. You didn't have to ask, you know. How could I ever forget you? She was a 1988 Nissan Pulsar, hands down the most unreliable car I've ever owned or will ever own, but she'll always be my first, and I wouldn't want it any other way. I've owned three cars since then. One's far more reliable, and two I've quite enjoyed. The second was a rebound car I never really liked, feeling as though I was betraying my Pulsar as I navigated the streets we'd driven together. My third was my first car as I turned down the road of post-college life, and I grew more with that car than any other. I held my wife's hand for the first time in that car. It ushered me into adulthood, the first car I owned as I drove to and from a job that was an actual career. It sat outside the house on which I made my monthly mortgage payments. It carried home our first dog together. It was a good car, the Saturn. Stick shift, roof rack, bike rack, all white. No mixtapes this time, CDs. Now I own another car, one I bought unassisted from anyone else, a practical one that serves me well, and with it, I often find myself driving down back roads, a coffee in my hand, and every now and then I think back to those early days, to that first car, of similar rides, yet so different. Each turn, a new exotic location, highways that stretch forever, every minute on the road loaded with a thrill from the unpredictability and unreliability of the car's temperament. Those days, in that car are long gone, but not really. There's something magical about a boy in his first car. A first car represents so much freedom, adulthood, responsibility. While it might have four wheels when you're in the driver's seat, you might as well be flying. There's no reason why a hunk of metal should mean so much, especially my hunk of metal, but it does. I still remember sitting in it before I had my license using it only as a radio, a safe place to talk about life and girls and dreams of the future. I still remember the specific curve of the steering wheel beneath my hands and the electric glow from the console. I remember how low to the ground the car sat, so low I never understood how it didn't leave a trail of sparks behind me like I was Ghost Rider on his motorcycle. 
The mixtapes that littered the floor and the seats. Mixtapes I still refuse to throw out. Rectangular artifacts of a distant time. Soundtracks to my youth. The moments. Spring evening. The world pouring through the open roof. A winter's night with nothing to do. Summer minute after summer minute. Every single breakdown on the side of a road. The alternator. The radiator. The fuel pump. The spark plugs. The muffler. Like I said, there's something special about a boy in his car. And this is captured perfectly with Stephen King's love letter to that relationship, 1983's Christine. Much like the cars of our lives, this will not be Stephen King's last book about cars, but it is his true first. He might have test-driven others in short stories, but this here, this is his first. He'll sit behind the wheel of the road virus as it heads north from a Buick 8 and Mr. Mercedes and the pages of the Dark Tower he will explore the very real evil that can come from a runaway car, one that means something very personally to him. But don't ever forget that Christine was his first. I'm going to stop here because I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I'm going to uh, read from the, the Wikipedia summary um, so that I have a basis on which I can build my analysis. While riding home from work with his friend Dennis, nerdy teen Arnold Arnie Cunningham spots a dilapidated red and white 1958 Plymouth Fury parked in front of a house. Arnie makes Dennis stop so he can examine the car, despite Dennis's attempts to talk Arnie out of it. The car's owner, Roland D. LeBay, an elderly gentleman wearing a back supporter, sells the car, named Christine, to Arnie for $250. While it is waiting for Arnie to finish the paperwork, Dennis sits inside Christine. He has a vision of the car and the surroundings as they were 20 years ago when the car was new. Frightened, Dennis gets out of Christine, deciding he dislikes Arnie's new car. Arnie brings Christine to a do-it-yourself auto repair facility run by Will Darnell, who is suspected of using the garage as a front for illicit operations. As Arnie restores the automobile, he becomes withdrawn, humorless, and cynical, yet more confident and self-assured. Dennis is puzzled by the changes in both his friend and Christine. The repair work uh, proceeds haphazardly, and the more extensive repairs do not appear to be done by Arnie. Arnie's appearance improves in tandem with Christine's. When LeBay dies, Dennis meets his younger brother George, who reveals Roland's history of violent behavior. George also reveals that LeBay's daughter choked to death on a hamburger in the back seat of the car. LeBay's wife was so traumatized that she apparently committed suicide in its front seat by carbon monoxide poisoning. As time passes, Dennis observes that Arnie is taking on many of LeBay's personality traits. He also notices that Arnie has become close to Darnell, even acting as a courier in Darnell's interstate smuggling operations. When Arnie is almost finished restoring Christine, an attractive girl named Lee Cabot transfers to his high school. She is regarded as the school beauty, and her decision to go out with Arnie puzzles everyone. While on a date with Arnie, she nearly chokes to death on a hamburger and is saved only by the intervention of a hitchhiker who uses the Heimlich maneuver. Lee notices that Christine's dashboard lights seem to become glaring green eyes watching her during the incident, and Arnie tried to save her by ineffectually pounding on her back. She realizes that she and Christine are competing for Arnie's affection and vows to never get in the car again. Arnie's mother refuses to let him keep Christine at home. After several arguments, Arnie's father purchases a 30-day pass for the airport parking lot, helping to restore peace in the family. Soon afterward, 
Buddy Repperton, a bully who frequently targeted Arnie before being expelled from high school, and his gang of thugs vandalized the car. As Arnie pushes Christine through Darnell's garage slash junkyard, the car repairs itself. Arnie strains his back in the process and begins wearing a brace all the time, as LeBay did. His relationship with Lee declines. A number of inexplicable car-related deaths occur around town, starting with Buddy and all but one of his accomplices in the vandalism and ending with Will Darnell. The police find evidence linking Christine to the scene of each death, although none is found on the car itself. A police detective named Rudy Junkins becomes suspicious of Arnie, but his suspicions are not allayed even though Arnie is able to produce an airtight alibi for each death. It is revealed that Christine, possessed by LeBay's vengeful spirit, is committing these murders independently and repairing herself after each one. Arnie becomes obsessed with Christine, forgetting Lee entirely, and Lee and Dennis begin their own relationship, unearthing details of Christine and LeBay's past. Dennis speculates that LeBay may have deliberately sacrificed his daughter to make Christine a receptacle for his spirit, after learning that he de- deliberately took her into the car when she started choking. One evening, Arnie stumbles upon Lee and Dennis intimately close in Dennis's car, sending him into a rage. Then, Rudy Junkins falls victim to a gruesome death. Knowing they are now on the top of LeBay and Christine's hit list, Dennis and Lee devise a plan to destroy the car and hopefully save Arnie. While Arnie is out of town, they lure Christine to to Darnell's garage and batter her to pieces using a septic tank truck. Dennis briefly witnesses LeBay's spirit attempting to order him to stop. The remains are put through a car crusher, and Dennis learns that Arnie and his mother were both killed in a highway accident while Christine killed Arnie's father earlier. Witness accounts lead Dennis to believe that LeBay's spirit, tied to Arnie through Christine, tore itself away and caused the wreck. Four years later, Dennis reflects on these events. He and Lee parted after attending college together, and he is now a junior high school teacher. He learns about a freak car accident in Los Angeles, in which a movie theater employee Possibly the last surviving member of Buddy's gang was struck and killed by a car that smashed in through the theater wall. Dennis speculates that Christine may have rebuilt herself and set out to kill everyone who stood against her, saving him for last. Um, I apologize for the reading of, of that uh, Wikipedia summary. It's just that I, as I was reading it, I kept coming across errors. Um, in the Wikipedia summary itself, um, some of the things that they have here are are just incorrect. The the timeline isn't as faithful to the novel as as you would expect. But hey, that's that's Wikipedia. Sometimes it's it's dead on. Sometimes not so much. This novel is broken into three sections, gleefully titled after the subgenres of the music that should be coming out of every teenager's speakers. Ones that came out of From Kings, and even mine, despite the fact that I piloted my first car in the late 90s. Part 1, Dennis, Teenage Car Songs. Part 2, Arnie, Teenage Love Songs. Part 3, Christine, Teenage Death Songs. But first, it begins with our narrator, who we will later learn is Dennis, but more importantly, learn the important beats of his friendship with Arnie. And most importantly, we learn everything we need to know about Arnie, that he's an outcast from every social clique, which will make his relationship with Christine much more poignant. It's not just a kid with his first car. It's a kid who needed a car to shape an identity for himself, which is the heart of the story when you remove all the supernatural elements. As I said earlier, a first car represents freedom. With Christine, Arnie is no longer shackled to who he once was. He can now drive to any destination to discover who he wants to be.
but I'm getting ahead of myself. All this is going to be explored in depth uh, later on. In the meantime, King establishes our main characters, their relationship with one another, and hooks us with foreboding lines such as, So I call what happened a tragedy. It was bad from the start, and it got worse in a hurry. And then with the prologue over, Stephen King launches into Section 1, Dennis, Teenage Car Songs. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but with the first line of the first section, I believe that the prologue was written after the bulk of the narrative, possibly even after multiple drafts. In the first sentence, King writes, Oh my God! My friend Arnie Cunningham cried out suddenly. I mean, why bother pointing out my friend instead of writing, Oh my God, Arnie cried out suddenly. King had already established Dennis and his relationship with Arnie in the prologue, so this line seems repetitive and unnecessary, which makes me believe that it was the original first line of the story. Now keep in mind that I'm just nitpicking here because the rest of the opening shows why King earns what he's paid. Keep in mind that all that's occurring is a teenager spotting a car he'd like to buy. Through Dennis's narration, he sneaks in the ominous foreboding doom with lines like, Instead, there was a kind of goofy madness to his face I didn't much like. And when they meet Roland LeBay, there was a moment when I felt like slugging him and dragging him away. Something came into the old man's eyes. Not just the gleam, it was something behind the gleam. The sale between Arnie and Roland begins with Dennis as our surrogate. We are mistrustful of him because Dennis is, and through it all, there is just one character just as present, but completely mute, and that's Christine, the silent puppeteer of Roland, hungry for a new victim. And through this scene of building tension comes a moment of beautiful truth, which again illustrates King's ability as a writer. I'll argue that you can't claim to be a writer unless you're able to capture quality of truth within either everyday existence or life itself. On page 14, King writes, I put an arm around Arnie's shoulders. For some reason, I remembered the two of us up in his room on a rainy fall day when we were both no more than six years old. Cartoons flickering on an ancient black and white TV as we colored with old Crayolas from a dented coffee can. The image made me feel sad and a little scared. I have days, you know, when it seems to me that six is an optimum age, and that's why it lasts about 7.2 seconds in real time. Not only is this a wonderfully rich example of his writing, it's also thematically resonant with the story itself. After all, the novel's about the dissolution of a friendship that comes with a period where the late teenage years meet young adulthood. It was a theme he began to explore in his previously published work, The Body, found within the novella Different Seasons. In it, the main character, Gordy Lachance, just a few years younger than our characters here, has to start to come to terms with the fact that what was and what is does not mean what will be. Arnie's change comes as soon as he spots Christine. It's love at first sight, and when he tells his parents that he's bought the car, Dennis notices a hard expression he'd never seen before. Christine already has her hooks into Arnie. This hardened expression gives way to full-blown anger, the likes of which neither Dennis nor Arnie's parents had ever seen. Yet all the while, King keeps one foot on comedic ground. First, there's a humorous, qu there's a humorous quality to experience this fight through Dennis's eyes. This is a brutally uncomfortable scene, as anyone that's ever witnessed a family fight can attest. And through it all, he keeps thinking about Arnie's mother wearing her jeans, Arnie's dad is standing there with an apple in one hand and a yogurt in the other, and Arnie literally cries over spilt milk. But the scene, while dashed with comedic elements, is also intense, with Dennis not only a bystander but a recipient of Arnie's mother's rage, and King provides us with one of his truthful moments on page 21. My wariness of Regina was probably only part of it, 
and to be completely honest, probably only a small part. When you're a kid, and after all, what is 17 but the outermost limit of kidhood, you tend to be on the side of other kids. You know with a strong and unerring instinct that if you don't bulldoze down a few fences and knock some gates flat, your folks, out of the best of intentions, would be happy to keep you in the kid corral forever. And that's what Arnie is going through. Um, you know, he is firmly corralled by, by his parents. There's a great scene between Arnie and Dennis that is rarely captured in fiction. Usually in fiction, we have tales of great childhood friendships, and we have tales of teenage romance. But we rarely have tales of great teenage friendships, especially at this age. The story cannot work if you don't buy the friendship between these two, and I don't know about you, but I totally do. It's completely earnest. And this scene on their way to LeBay's house reveals that Christine is a mirror to Arnie, a twinner, if you will. Both are outcast, ignored, beat up physically, and unappealing. If In Christine, Arnie sees himself, and from a symbolic standpoint, if he can repair her, he can repair himself. In this same scene, when Dennis is left alone with Christine, King has fun with the love triangle that he's established. Throughout the novel, he makes a point to imbue her with characteristics of a human, specifically a dangerous, untrustworthy seductress. And in this scene, when Dennis is alone with her, she, Arnie's new girlfriend, puts the moves on him. She conjures a vision of beauty. The car itself is transformed. She purrs in his ear. She transforms the lawn beyond to a neighborhood found in dreams. It's all an illusion, not unlike the water hag from room 217 or 237 if you prefer the movie of The Shining. For a story about an evil car, there are a lot of quality observations of life found within its pages, observations whose significance I was too young to grasp when I first read it. King delivers a scene that demonstrates Dennis's better character traits as well as how the world seems to react violently and negatively towards Arnie. While Christine is parked in front of a neighbor's lawn with a flat, the owner of the house goes ballistic in a rather unbelievable fashion. It causes tension, sure, but the actions of the character of Ralph are a little too over the top. It certainly adds zany humor, but it's all in all rather unnecessary. But then King grounds us back in reality with Arnie's completely understandable breakdown, and we are reminded that under the hood of this horror novel is an engine that runs on the fuel of anguish and frustration. Sorry about that. <laughs> but in all honesty, it's an honest moment, as it is the realization that Dennis's family laughs at his mother behind her back. It's a little touch that goes a long way in providing a little texture to the novel. It doesn't make his family awful, it just makes him a family, a pack that loves each other enough to laugh at each other's idiosyncrasies. Now contrast this with Arnie's totalitarian family structure, where a thought in the wrong place leads to World War III. We are given another glimpse of family with the introduction of Roland LeBay's brother, the only family member to visit LeBay's grave upon his death. The scene allows Dennis and the reader to learn of Christine's past, specifically of how the obsessive qualities of LeBay manifested in the form of the car that killed his family. His daughter choked in Christine's back seat, and his wife committed suicide in her. From a story standpoint, King has created an evil car that causes harm to those closest to its owner. From a symbolic standpoint, Christine serves as the object of a father-slash-husband's selfish desires, and the literal deaths of the family function as a commentary on the death of a family when one member serves only himself, as seen before in Jack Torrance and his relationship with his family, again in The Shining. Christine rewards this selfishness like some four-wheeled genie, granting Arnie a clearer complexion, a more handsome face, and muscles on his bones, all in return for his soul. As she improves, he improves, and vice versa. 
Now, on page 136, we are introduced not just to the love triangle, um, as that was already established between Arnie, Dennis, and Christine, but a love square as Lee comes rolling into the picture. Immediately, she keeps her eyes on Arnie, and Dennis keeps his eyes on her, and we can see where this is going. Not even 200 pages in, and King has yet to unleash Christine upon the world. Instead, he raises the level of growing dread within Dennis, who doesn't want to fully admit that something is strange with the car, and doesn't know how to accept that it's somehow affecting not just Arnie's mental state, but his physical traits as well. With the introduction of Lee, King starts to show the wedge being driven between Dennis and Arnie, not because of Lee, but because of Arnie's growing obsession over Christine. It's an interesting time for their friendship to begin to deteriorate. It coincides with Lee's arrival in their lives, but unlike other stories that involve a love triangle, it isn't her fault, or the fault of either the lover or the one lusting after her. It's King's way of acknowledging the trope and playing against it, rather than into it. And as the novel progresses, I'm fascinated with this particular slice of life that King has decided to focus on. Usually in fiction, characters in their late teens are aged up, creating an idealized romanticism, young adults rather than old children. With these characters, King explores the contradictions that come with this age. For instance, Dennis is old enough to have sex regularly with the cheerleader, but still immature enough to refer to her as the cheerleader, and spends time goofing off with Arnie, who is similarly dating Lee, but will also, sh also shove his mouth full of food in order to gross out Dennis. They're stuck in between ages, and it's a, it's a specific time of life that King rarely explores. And I'm glad that he did in this novel, because he captures it beautifully. Now, part one concludes with the crippling of Dennis. It's temporary, but it's enough to put him in the hospital, and it ends his football career. It serves as a symbolic reversal. Between he and Arnie, Dennis has always been the physical one. Now, the injury has sealed what had been building up since the beginning of the story, the change in Arnie, and a shift in the power dynamics of their relationship. Part 2. Arnie. Teenage Love Songs. With the section change, King switches from Dennis's first-person perspective to third-person perspective, and the section begins with a brutal fight between Arnie and his parents. King goes out of his way to stress that Arnie is not in the grips of full-blown full possession. He doesn't make it that easy for us. Christine doesn't have to exert much force over him. Any car would have caused the same sensation of growing freedom and independence within Arnie. For Dennis, he doesn't like the car because he knows there's something wrong with the car. Regina Cunningham doesn't like the car because she knows that it has empowered Arnie, and that terrifies her. The scene does wonders for the reader, making Arnie increasingly sympathetic, which is important to do because with everything that comes later, it's necessary that he remain more than just a villain. He needs to be the victim here just as much as Lee or Dennis or anyone else that loses Arnie to Christine. After all, Arnie loses himself in the process, and it isn't the fault of Christine herself. It's just as much the fault, if not more so, of his mother's controlling stubbornness and his father's inability to speak up. Now with that said, Arnie and his father have a nice moment of father-son bonding with a car ride in Christine as Michael tries to meet Arnie halfway. King shows that, yeah, Arnie's mother is intractable, but Arnie's not dissimilar, with Michael thinking of his son as both arrogant and petulant, a weak king. However, Michael does convince Arnie to house Christine at the airport, out of sight, out of mind, in a move that is spotted by one of Buddy's goons, Sandy. And when Sandy tells Buddy, King reminds us why he's the king of his craft with descriptions like these. Buddy Repperton had begun to smile. It was not a pleasant sight, that smile. And not only because the teeth it revealed were already going rotten. 
It was as if, somewhere, some terrible machinery had just whined to life and was beginning to cycle up and up to full running speed. Later, Arnie and Lee are having a romantic moment when she breaks away and expresses her concerns which aren't surprising but come out of the blue from her. The concerns are, of course, that Arnie cares more about Christine than he does for her, that something is generally wrong about the car. But keep in mind that we haven't spent any time in Lee's head. Until this point, she has been given only slightly more depth as a character than the cheerleader, so when, he gives her, uh, so when she gives her outburst, having not spent any time seeing it built up comes off as a little jarring. Now on the flip side, because this is Arnie's section of the novel, the fact that he is completely clueless makes perfect sense that it should come off as jarring. He's oblivious, so it should come off as a shock to us. Now, what came off as a surprise is explained perfectly on page 196 of the paperback edition. Because the really crazy part was that she felt Christine was watching them. That she was jealous, disapproving, maybe hating. Because there were times, like tonight, as Arnie skated the Plymouth so smoothly and delicately across the building scales of sleet, when she felt that the two of them, Arnie and Christine, were welded together in a disturbing parody of the act of love. Because Lee did not feel that she rode in Christine, when she got in to go somewhere with Arnie, she felt swallowed in Christine. And the act of kissing him, making love to him, seemed a perversion worse than voyeurism or exhibitionism. It was like making love inside the body of her rival. The really crazy part of it was that she hated Christine. Hated her and feared her. She had developed a vague dislike of walking in front of the new grill or closely behind the trunk. She had a vague thoughts of the emergency brake letting go or the gear shift popping out of park into the neutral for some reason. Christine's personality is coming more and more to the forefront, and what was hinted at is just becoming more and more obvious to everyone around her, um, even if they don't really know how to express it. And even if those expressions seem ludicrous, it's still something that's causing people a great deal of unease. Now, when Buddy's goons take out Christine, Arnie's obsessions begin to not only drive away Lee, but drive her straight into Dennis's arms. The turn of events um, had to position the two best friends against each other, and what better way to do it than because of a girl? It's been done before, and quite frankly, doesn't need to be done at all. In fact, a girl had already come between them, and her name is Christine. King had already established her so well as the girl in Arnie's life that her representation of his love interest worked as a metaphor. King really didn't need an actual girlfriend for Arnie. In fact, by keeping it limited only to the sorry, <laughs> in fact, keeping it limited only to Christine, it could have kept the novel as a black comedy. Instead, with the inclusion of Lee and the splintering of the best friends because of her, it muddies what had already been established. I'm not saying that Lee's involvement isn't interesting, and King makes it work. However, I believe that if he had settled for a love triangle instead of a square, it would have made for a more interesting version of the one that we received because of the square. Now, when Christine takes her first victim, it comes on about halfway through the book. It's classic King, and he unleashes the dread that has built up so far. He's teased us, and he's teased us, idling at the light. In this scene, he puts the pedal to the metal and lets those tires squeal. He illustrates that Christine is a beast with a mind of her own and plays up the animalistic qualities of her with descriptions of her engine graveling, and it came with sudden power that the rear end seemed to squat like the haunches of a dog preparing to spring, a dog or a she-wolf. With Moochie's murder, we see the lengths to which Christine will go for revenge. Furthermore, 
what had been hinted around before is described explicitly as the backwards odometer causes the car to heal itself. It's such a strange concept, a sentient car with a mutant healing factor that may or may not be powered by, by time travel. It's so bizarre that it just works, and it's touches like these that make it so fun to read. With the first murder, the story shifts into its next gear, and Arnie finds himself in over his head and is forced to ask questions he's not sure he wants the answers to. Like a drug addict coming down long enough to, to question the events of the night before, he realizes he might not want to know and gets high again. Except his drug of choice is the car, and just like a drug, it's taking a heavy physical and emotional toll on his body. With the murder, the supernatural aspects of the novel come to the forefront. Whereas the first half of the novel was dedicated to getting to know the characters, here we have the characters finally having to face something they can't explain rationally. Police officer Junkins is the first to address this, his gut telling him that Arnie is clearly more involved than he's letting on, while his brain disproves it with the rational state of the car, who could not look the way that it does if it had run someone over. And yet, his gut presses him on. And Lee becomes our avatar in the novel, as she addresses to Arnie the things she's felt and the things we've seen, even stating that the fact that she has to talk about a supernatural experience is crazy, but it's true. And that is a great touch, because a lot of the times the in in novels about the supernatural or movies about the supernatural, characters won't accept what's going on. You know, I mean, and I think that everyone has felt frustration at characters in these types of movies and, and books because they should be able to put enough pieces together to to say that something's wrong and they, they actively ignore it. So I, I really like the fact that, that King decided to make Lee more than a victim here and is and made her someone that accepts these things. Not necessarily accepts them, but you know, will accept that there's something that she can't quite understand and is willing to talk about it because it's her life. You know, there, there's a, I remember from a psychology class that I took that humans are the only animal that will put themselves in harm's way if they feel it. You know, I mean, if an animal senses danger, the animal will flee. But, you know, I mean, in an elevator, for instance, if there's someone standing in an, if you're standing in an elevator and someone enters the elevator and it's just you and that person and you have a gut feeling that something's wrong, chances are you'll stay in the elevator. Okay, you'll try to rationalize that that gut feeling, even though you know you do have vestiges, um, you know, of a more animal side that may be warning you. But if you were just an animal, you would not be in that situation. You would have fleed. And so that's why I like Lee because her gut's telling her something's wrong and she's not going to spend more time rationalizing it than, than she has to. Now, what's a story about an evil car without a car chase? We get a fantastic scene in which Christine hunts down Buddy, who survives the brutal car crash. And that is even the best part of the scene. That comes when Buddy manages to scramble up a snow embankment to get away from the car, who slams into the base to dislodge enough snow to cause Buddy to tumble back down. It's incredibly tense. And we think that Buddy will survive Christine, but probably won't survive the elements or injuries. When the rotting ghost of LeBay appears, scaring him enough to fall backwards into the path of Christine. While it's a great scene, I can't help but think that King missed an opportunity here by um, you know, eliminating the head of the gang so early on. He's not even Christine's last victim. He could have built up more tension by saving him for last. And the bully, now a victim, could become proactive 
moving against Arnie, possibly even working alongside Lee and Dennis. A situation like this could have added extra piles of tension and would have allowed Buddy to be a wild card whose motivations and allegiances the character and readers aren't quite sure of. Now going back to LeBay, the more time Arnie spends with Christine and the more mannerisms of LeBay he adopts, the more powerful LeBay becomes, and he starts to appear among his victims. This is creepy and fun, but raises the question of whether LeBay or Christine is the source of the horror in this novel. Is it a story about an evil car? Does she drive herself? Or are all these scenes where she appears to be driving herself really just scenes of a ghost LeBay driving her? Were his low human qualities so powerful that he pressed so many negative emotions onto the car, it gave her kind of sentience, not unlike the Marston House from Salem's Lot or the Overlook from The Shining? Or is it that the car was always evil and drained every drop of LeBay's horrid soul dry, transforming him into an undead servant, she his Barlow to his Straker? I like this last scenario because it plays with the concept of the teenage love song, that his love was so strong for her it transcended death. Now stay tuned after the um, after I conclude the, the main section of the podcast. I'll play the music out at the end. And for Dark Tower fans, stay tuned because I want to get into more about this because there is a section here in which LeBay's brother mentions that their mother had referred to Roland as a changeling, which in um, folklore um, means that a, a fairy has come in the night and swapped out someone's child with a, a fairy child that that grows up in its place. Um, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as it might tie into the Dark Tower, so just stick around for, for that. In the meantime, Arnie's descent continues with the possibility of jail time. Now, as I read this whole section, okay, with the drug smuggling and the arrest and, and him holding out information and you know to the cops, I... I liked it, don't get me wrong, but I just I wondered if it was a necessary inclusion. It doesn't add much to the propulsion of the story. It certainly demonstrates the change in Arnie, yeah, I mean, and the effect of, of how it's destroying his parents, but it's a B-plot that concludes with Arnie safely out of jail, tension-free. On one hand, it's fitting that King provides this story, because it makes sense on a thematic level, that a boy's car will lead to a life of crime. It's a nightmare for parents. But aside from it being an extended joke, I'm not sure that it entirely works. And I think that if it was cut out, the novel would remain the same. So the question is, does it need to be included in the novel? This section concludes with Christine taking out Darnell in a scene that brought back memories of Orca when the drive-by killer whale attacked Bo Derek's house and chomped off her leg. Now, in Christine, in this novel, I would have liked at least one of Christine's victims to survive. I already mentioned, um, you know... Buddy, you know, how interesting it would have been if Buddy had, had survived to, to be involved in the events at the end of the novel. Um, and I think the same thing with, uh, with Darnell here. I think that it would have added an extra layer of the unknown. Because she's a car, she's limited. And so when he went up the stairs, I had hoped that he'd be safe because his survival would allow him to go after Arnie. Placing Arnie in danger would add a new wrinkle to the story because the reader would have mixed emotions on what exactly they want to happen to Arnie. Would we want the sleazy Darnell to enact revenge, or would we want Arnie to somehow be saved? While this last question is explored, I believe the first part would have created a dynamic that was missing from the version we got. So, it's just a, just a what if, just a, you know, what could have been done differently. Which leads us to part three. Christine. 
teenage death songs. As part three opens, we notice that the narrative has switched back to first-person perspective, which signals the return of Dennis to the narrative. This made me wonder why King removed him from the second section of the novel at all. Would Dennis's involvement have hastened the events of the story? If he had been active, would he and Lee have teamed up earlier? Would this combined force have been enough to save Arnie earlier? Would they have devised a way to destroy Christine? These are all valid questions, and the more I think about it, the more it seems his injury was simply a way to keep him out of the events so Christine can run wild. In retrospect, the injury, and his hundreds of pages in which he does not play an active role, seems rather clunky and very hand of the writer. Had Dennis remained in the picture, the aforementioned events could have played out, but rather than hurrying the story to the finish line, they might have um, upped the level of tension and conflict. What if they had destroyed, tried to destroy Christine earlier? and failed. What would have eventual Christine do to them? How would Arnie react? I would rather have this scenario than the drug smuggling in the federal bust of Arnie. Just a thought. Regardless, Dennis's reintroduction hastens along the end of the story, and the events that you expect to play out begin to play out. Both pushed away by Arnie, Dennis and Lee find each other and fall in love, a bit predictable, but well within the parameters of the teenage car love song that King has been composing. Dennis receives kindly advice from his sage-like father, who has enough knowledge through observation that something is occurring that defies explanation and believes enough in that which he can't understand, even though he doesn't admit it to himself, that Dennis has a shot of putting it right. It's an interesting inclusion and shows that some characters, even the peripheral ones, when thrown into the shadow of a monster, won't shy away from it or try to rationalize it. And it's clear from these types of interactions where Dennis gets his bravery from. Dennis reaches out to Arnie to see if his friend is left, and it's clear that it's 90% LeBay inside. Then on page 416, King provides us with a surreal and horrifying scene in which Dennis sees all the corpses of Christine's victims riding along with them, she now being a fully active haunted house on four wheels, and he with no place to go. He goes one step further, having Christine slip in and out of time periods as if she was riding in and out of the glow of streetlights. The supernatural comes roaring to the surface here, and for Dennis, he's left with no choice but to bring this novel to an end. It's concluded. Christine is a monster that needs to be vanquished. The issue is separating Arnie from this monster. How entangled are the two? Is Arnie still Arnie at this point, or is he so possessed by the spirit of Roland LeBay that he's beyond saving? Can Dennis and Lee even destroy Christine without doing the same to Arnie? The moment comes when Arnie discovers Lee and Dennis, and based on what we know has happened to everyone else that has gotten on Arnie's bad side, we have a quickly sinking bad feeling, and their motivations now aren't just to save Arnie, but to save themselves. There's now a ticking clock to the story. The machine has to die before they do. Dennis confronts Arnie, and in a confident move, goads LeBay to come to the forefront like a priest in an exorcism. He manages to see exactly who he is dealing with, and also has an honest moment with Arnie, who admits that he's still there and needs help. It's a tragic scene, and if we look at it through the lens of a drug metaphor, it's the final intervention of a best friend trying to save a junkie who has been totally consumed by need and rage. In a quick moment of clarity, he asks for help, but both know the need will take over soon enough, and whatever last shreds of the person will be replaced by the drugs. In this case, the new drug-shaped personality is Roland LeBay. On page 479, as we near the end of the story, King references King Arthur, 
And if we were to assign roles, then Arnie is King Arthur, Dennis is Lancelot, and um, Lee is Guinevere. It's only a passing reference, but he's wise to invoke probably literature's most famous love triangle. And the reference sets a foreboding tone because in this classic relationship, we know that things don't work out too well for our king. And just like Arthur, Arnie dies. During the confrontation between Dennis and Lee and Christine, LeBay attempts to repossess Arnie, and in the fight, the car crashes, killing Arnie and Regina. All three Cunninghams have passed, all off-page, interestingly enough. Here, King reminds us that his characters are people. All right, It's not a happy ending, despite the fact that you know, Dennis has lived and Lee has lived and the monster's been put out of the picture. There's been so much loss, right? You know, and through it all, Dennis never forgets who Arnie was. Um, and that is illustrated beautifully and tragically on page 494 of the paperback edition. I was still trying to cope with the idea that Arnie could possibly be dead. It was impossible, wasn't it? We had gone to Camp Winesco in Vermont together when we were 12, and I got homesick, and I told him I was going to call and tell my parents that they had to come get me. Arnie said if I did, he'd tell everyone at school that the reason I came home early was that they caught me eating boogers in my bunk after lights out and expelled me. We climbed a tree in my backyard to the very top fork and carved our initials there. He used to sleep over at my house, and we'd stay up late watching shock theater, crouched together on the sofa under an old quilt. We ate all these clandestine Wonder Bread sandwiches. When he was 14, Arnie came to me, scared and ashamed, because he was having these sexy dreams and he thought that they were making him wet the bed. But it was the ant farms my mind kept coming back to. How could he be dead when we had made those ant farms together? Dear Christ, it seemed like only a week or two ago, those ant farms. So how could he be dead? I opened my mouth to tell Mercer that Arnie couldn't be dead. Those ant farms made the very idea absurd. Then I closed my mouth again. I couldn't tell him that. He was just a guy. Arnie, I thought. Hey, man, it, it's not true, is it? Jesus Christ. We still got so much to do. We never even double-dated at the drive-in yet. These are the moments that really hammer home this novel. Um, it's really just, you know, like, like I said before, it, it, it seems like it's a novel about a, a killer car, but it's not. You know, it, it's really about the characters that come first and foremost. And scenes like that really help ground it always in a very real emotion and a very real place. Now, I want to talk about Arnie here for a little bit. Um, on page 24, Dennis thinks, That's it, I thought, now feeling a little sad as well as upset. They'll beat him down and LeBay will have his $25 and that 58 Plymouth will sit here for another thousand years or so. They had done similar things to him before because he was a loser. Even his parents knew it. He was intelligent, and when he got past the shy and wary exterior, he was humorous and thoughtful and sweet, I guess is the word I'm fumbling around for. Sweet, but a loser. His folks knew it, as well as the machine shop white soxers who yelled at him in the halls and thumb-rubbed his glasses. They knew he was a loser, and they would beat him down. And that's like the first real description that we get of Arnie that really sums up who Arnie is at the beginning of the novel. And of course, that helps just build the foundation on, on which the, the character arc is, is built. And when we see how much he changes and he morphs and he gets taken over by LeBay, and it's just, 
so sad. It's just, it's a really sad story. Now, Arnie's temperament begins to change as soon as he meets Christine. He grows bolder, quicker to anger. He becomes more forceful. This is an example of telling, not showing, actually um, working better than, than showing, not telling. What I mean is that we don't see Arnie before he meets Christine, and as a result, we can never truly contrast his changing traits against the normal version of himself. In order to do that, King would have had to devote a significant amount of time showing how he's picked on in school, showing how he's subservient to his parents, etc. Much like how we see Meek Carrie White um, for a good majority of the novel before she starts to grow bolder herself. Instead, King dives right in and begins at the moment of love at first sight. His change begins as soon as we begin to read the novel, so it's up to Dennis to fill us in on who Arnie used to be before. In essence, Dennis quite literally tells us what we need to know. Usually I'll point this out as a criticism, but here I think that it works. First of all, it's an economic choice. By eliminating the groundwork, we're able to dive right into the good stuff. And because the change isn't instantaneous, we still see the vestigial remains of this character before he's completely taken over by Christine and the spirit of LeBay. For instance, we see how he gets eaten alive and abused by every single person he comes into contact with, from his parents to Ralph, the angry neighbor, to Darnell. And when he has, when he has this outburst of frustration in Dennis's car, we see a level of rage that is similar and as understandable as Carrie White's from Carrie. In fact, in an alternate universe, I'd love for Arnie to roll up in front of Carrie's house on prom night in that beautiful Plymouth Fury and ride them out of their miserable lives into a story that doesn't involve proms, bullies, and overbearing parents. The anger that he displayed in the car with Dennis, the similar type of rage demonstrated by Carrie, manifests itself when a grease monkey takes out one of Christine's taillights, causing Arnie to violently defend her. Arnie's still the recipient of a beatdown, but it's one that also includes Arnie fighting back, demonstrating the lengths he'll go to fight for his love. Arnie continues to slip, even when he's falling in love with Lee, a tragic turn only because without the car, it would be a redemptive end to his high school career, a loser who became a king. And yet, the only reason he has the girls because of both the confidence gained by and the physical transformation that came from the car itself. And when Christine is tortured at the hands of Buddy and his goons, Arnie sinks even further, lashing out at his mother and at Lee, and we are given a glimpse of the true nature of Christine's possession when Arnie's mother sneaks into his room to see not a teenager, but an old man in her son's bed. It's a horrifying moment, and we see that he isn't just falling in a bad romance with Christine, but he's also transforming into Roland LeBay. Regina's plight is grounded in a very real um, uh, fright and fear of parents, and that's being hated by their teenage children who are seemingly possessed by beings beyond their control, strangers lurking behind familiar faces. It's touches like these that make Christine's conflicts transcend the page, because ultimately it's not a story about a monster car. It's about the terrifying freedom that comes from the late teenage years, when teens are given opportunities they are still too young to handle. Arnie is um, at one point put into his place by his father, who calls him out as a druggie, hooked on his car. And the fear of not being able to save your children, who are no longer your children, is found within Michael, on the bottom of page uh, 247 and 248. Michael suddenly found himself thinking of Arnie's ninth birthday. He and his son had gone out to the little zoo in Philly Plains, had eaten lunch out, 
and had finished the day by playing 18 holes at the indoor miniature golf course on Outer Basin Drive. The place had burned down in 1975. Regina had not been able to come. She'd been flat on her back with bronchitis. The two of them had had a fine time. For Michael, that had been his son's best birthday, the one that symbolized for him, above all others, his son's sweet and uneventful American boyhood. They had gone to the zoo and come back, and nothing much had happened except they had had a great time. Michael and his son, who had been and who still was so dear to him. It seems like this, that, that, that just really make the tragedy of what happens that much more powerful. Um, this, this novel is so much, all right? It is, like I said earlier, yeah, I mean, there is an evil car. But when you really contrast it against the other evil car stories that Stephen King will write about, um, whether it be from a Buick 8 or the road virus heads north, but specifically from a Buick 8, um, you, you can tell that there's something missing about those other stories because it, it's missing all of the metaphor and the touches and the commentary about life and about growing up that's found here. Um, there is a lot going on in this book. I mean, to be, to be perfectly honest, I um, spent like the last month or so reading different seasons, right? Because I had to, you know, I, I read Shawshank and um, The Body and Apt Pupil and, um, you know, I reviewed the movies and I spent so much time there that I, I, was, I was really looking forward to getting out of different seasons and, and starting, you know, to reread another book. And to be perfectly honest, Christine, I, I had only read once before, and I've only seen the movie once, so this was very fresh to me. And this was not really what I had expected. You know, I, I remember it being, I remember Roland LeBay, I remember Arnie and Dennis and Lee, I remember I remember the, the key scenes, but I don't remember the flourishes or the touches or the moments of um, of commentary and, and, and these little descriptions that, that make it so much more about life and this, part, this particular um, moment of life, of, of the late childhood, of the late teenage years. Now, when I had first read it, I was probably like 13 years old, so three years removed from, from getting my car and driving around in, in the car and experiencing all of the, the thrills and the freedoms that, that came with the car. So there's so much in the text that I missed out the first time around that I just I, I couldn't plug into because I didn't have the life experience yet. So now on, you know, I, I had read it before the events of, of getting a car, which is what this whole you know, story is about. And then now that I'm on the other end of it, you know, 16 or so years removed from getting that car, that I'm able to look back on it with a certain lens of nostalgia, much in the same way that, that King does. You know, I mean, you know, he, he really shows this time for, for what it is, for all of the, you know, the, the small little, not, not supernatural horrors, but just for Arnie, the, the bullying and, and the acne and the not fitting in and the... The, the strained relationship with his parents and the lack of identity. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of reality there, but there, it, it, he, King, is able to add his own nostalgia to it as well, right? He, uh, j just the idea of driving around in the car and just the friendship between he and Dennis and, and the first love um, with Lee, there, there's so much to romanticize there. Um, it, it's, it's hard not to 
to write it with without that the the glasses of nostalgia and but King balances the the nostalgic piece with the reality piece very very well um, but I was able to get a lot out of this in a way that I wasn't expecting and it's funny when I sit down to reread these these stories because some of them I I I I have to really stop myself from taking notes and I had to do that with Christine because it was taking me forever to get through and not not that that's bad but I kind of just wanted to just not take notes and just reread it because I was really into the narrative it was almost as if I was reading it again for the first time and so I had so much to say and I found you know I mean there could I could have taken notes on something in every paragraph it seemed I mean the, the the little insights that King was providing about life there were so many of them and I was just astounded at how many of them there were within this novel. And then contrast that with, with me reading The Body. I had a difficult time reading The Body. I thought that I was going to like be pulling a lot out of that story, but I really had a hard time pulling anything out other than you know what I put in the, the podcast episode. And the same thing with Apt Pupil. I didn't, I didn't know that there was, I was going to have that much to say about it for a novel so dark and um, disturbing. So it, it's funny not knowing exactly how these stories are going to hit you, even though you've read them before. So I'm a big proponent of rereading, <laughs> um, if, if, that, if that wasn't obvious. But I'm just uh, thoroughly in awe of this book. I think that he does a really, really good job um, in many ways balancing, balancing so many different things, so many different insights... Um, and for a, a story that really is about three characters, um, there's a lot. There's a lot to it about about the fear in the perspective of the teenager, and then the fear in the perspective of the parents. He does a, a very, very it's a very poignant, very poignant novel, which is funny because this novel could be, you know, at this point, let's say he never wrote Christine. Um, you know, there, there's a Family Guy uh, um, moment where uh, Stephen King is in his editor's office pitching an idea, and he's like, holds up a lamp, I think. He's like, ooh, it's a haunted lamp. And uh, the editor says something like, you, you're just not trying anymore, or something like that. And, um, you know, in a, in a parody world, like, you could say that a haunted car is... is uh, it's like Stephen King running of ideas, but he has so many ideas jam-packed into this book. It's astounding. Um, and I, I mentioned the, the the adult perspective, and and you know, I mean, King spends enough time with Michael and Regina to show that Arnie symbolically. Um, this is what I'm talking about with the insight. He he's not the monster he is because of the car, but because he's the result of these two individuals. King's warning of over-controlling parenting and loveless marriage. This, he shows, is what can happen to your child. Just as he was able to channel the anger and frustration that sprang from young parenting with The Shining, I'm sure he was able to do similar things here. By this point in his life, his children are older. So not only is he able to provide the teenage perspective from his own experience, but he's able to capture the authenticity of the adult perspective as well. But in the literal events of the novel... Arnie is going through a change that no parent could ever help with. He's slowly becoming possessed by the spirit of Roland LeBay, while being warped by the presence of his evil car, the object of his affection. In fact, here we go again. It's another great commentary on King's part 
to explore our materialistic relationship with the objects in our lives. Not only does Arnie grow obsessive and possessive over Christine, but she does the same for Arnie. By providing a personality to the object, King suggests that we are the objects of our object's obsessions. Or to paraphrase Brad Pitt in Fight Club, the things you own end up owning you. Also, because she has a personality, we see that it's a completely unhealthy relationship of codependency and enabling. It's a relationship built on need rather than want. Many times, Arnie gets glimmers of truth, the last remaining shreds of his conscience telling him to junk the car, but the need will take over and the unhealthiness resumes. The unhealthiness is manifested physically with his bad back, the literal deterioration of the body corresponding to the deterioration of the spirit all because of this warped relationship. And make no mistake, um, you know, Arnie's death is, is a tragic one. You know, he, he didn't have a chance, right? You know, he, uh, he was in over his head in the beginning. He was a sucker. Um, he was glamored. He was mesmerized. He was lured in. Um, you know, by something he couldn't control. Um, Dennis couldn't have done anything. Lee couldn't have done anything. No one could have done anything. This this was going to happen, which is, and that's the tragedy there. Now, I uh, we've come to the section of the podcast where I will discuss the Kingisms. And for those of you who are first tuning into the Stephen King cast, the Kingisms are the tricks and traits and tropes that Stephen King uh, uses um, in his novels, patterns that you'll see across his, his different publications. So... Number one is one that is probably the, the, the kingism that I've talked about um, the most, um, and that is racism to highlight a character's worst attributes. Um, it's a way to denote to the reader that we are not supposed to like a particular character. This time it's Roland LeBay, who is the villain of the piece. Um, he's unlikable in all aspects, including the, the racism. He uses the N-word at one point. Um, and I, as I've said in other episodes, I just wonder if the racism at all is necessary or if it's overkill. Uh, number two, um, professors. Uh, Stephen King likes to write about two professions more than most, writers and teachers. And in this case, both of Arnie's parents are college professors. Number three, Kingism number three, bullies. Arnie is bullied by Buddy Reperton. Um, and as you know, bullies are often seen in King's works. He starts off his career with Carrie, which is all about um, someone getting bullied. Um, and we see a bully again very briefly in Salem's Lot. Um, you know, we see bullies in um, some of his short stories, including Sometimes They Come Back. Uh, and, you know, we will see the bully again in It. In which I think that is that's his his biggest um, bully moment, um, along with uh, you know most most recently um, in the chronology of this podcast uh, the body. Um, tarot cards number four is something that we see um, across Stephen King's works, um, most famously uh, with the Dark Tower series. Um, in one scene here, Dennis has a dream in which he sees an ancient Christine that makes him think of a tarot deck. Number five, okay, um, is about the legacy of evil as seen on page 106. 
Um, so I mean, this this brings about um, you know the the Marston House from Salem's Lot, or the Overlook from The Shining. So on page one hundred six, when talking to um, Roland LeBay's brother, um, the brother states. I don't believe my brother's car will make him happy, if anything, just the opposite. And as if he had read my thoughts on a few minutes before, he went on, No, I don't believe in curses, you know. Not in ghosts or anything precisely supernatural. But I do believe that emotions and events have a certain lingering resonance. It may be that emotions can even communicate themselves in certain circumstances. (laughs) If the circumstances are peculiar enough the way a carton of milk will take the flavor of certain strongly spiced foods if it's left open in the refrigerator. So that concept of an object, uh, whether it be a house or a car, as, as a battery um, for evil um, and, and negative emotions is, is definitely a concept that King loves to explore. Um, let's see, and then number six... Um, of course, it's the evil car. You know, I mean, that should have been number one, and I apologize. But, uh, I mean, the, the evil car is something that we've seen in trucks, in which uh, Plymouth Fury makes an appearance, by the way. Um, the Road Virus Heads North, the Dark Tower series from Buick 8, Dreamcatcher, Mr. Mercedes. Um, so he really likes playing with evil cars. Um, but this is it definitely his most famous. Uh, number seven is the dream that really wasn't a dream after all. Lee has a dream that a driverless Christine has pulled up in front of her house one night, and she's convinced it's a dream until she spots um, the tire tracks in the fresh snow the next morning. King will reenact this scene in his very next book, Pet Cemetery, with muddy, shoeless feet in the bed. Uh, number eight um, is a disturbing one, and that's uh, cars hitting people so hard their shoes fly off. Um, it's seen here, it's seen in Pet Cemetery, um, The Gunslinger, and later in The Dark Tower. Uh, number 10 is the slow-going physical transformation. We see this with Arnie as he transforms over the course of the novel into, Ro- into Roland LeBay. We'll see this again in The Dark Half, in Desperation, in Thinner, Needful Things, and The Tommyknockers. Uh, number 11 is a character haunted by prophetic-slash-supernatural dreams. Uh, in Christine, through Arnie's dreams, the spirit of Roland LeBay is able to take more control. It's a wonderful touch if you think about it. Arnie's choices to follow in the crooked footsteps of the criminal have turned his dreams into a nightmare. And by dreams, of course, I mean future. We've seen this before in Salem's Lot, The Shining, Cujo. Um, we'll see it again in Pet Cemetery and It, The Dark Half, and others. And then we have connections to um, Stephen King's other works. Um, First and foremost, spoiler alert, uh, but this is not the last time we see Christine. Um, In fact, she rolls right off the page of this book, right into the pages of It, providing a a villainous character a much-needed getaway. Uh, So, you know, I I just, I I like to think that there's like a... Like a legion of doom out there of all of Stephen King's uh, villains working together. Um, that maybe they all have like a club card and they meet up once a month. Um, and and uh, Pennywise just calls up Christine or Roland LeBay and says, "Hey, you know Raleigh, I I, I need you to do me a solid here, buddy." Uh, so th- stuff like that. I just I man, I just I love. 
and and that's all that we have for uh, for kingisms, really. Um, so I mean, I I think that you know we're now over an hour here, but I mean I I just like I said I was really into this novel. Um, I mean, and portions of it are are just so earnest that it it borders on comedy at times. You know, Lee's honest jealousy of the car is a prime example. It's natural for someone to feel jealous of another's object of a loved one's affection, but the extent to which her jealousy turns into rage is a bit over the top. But it doesn't matter if it's unintentional on King's part or fully intentional, because regardless, it works. The characters are teenagers, after all, and for a teenager to be dramatic over an illogical situation is expected. And though it takes place in the 80s, it always feels vintage 50s and 60s. You know, and, and what the, the best part of it, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is that the plot itself, the love between a boy and his car, the doomed love story between the boy and the girl, the betrayal um, between the, the boy's best friend and the boy's girl, the boy's death. Stephen King didn't just write an ode to the teenage car song. He wrote a teenage car song. And that is why I love Christine. There's just so much to it. Oh, so to to wrap up, the the last thing I'm gonna do is just um, read the what I believe the 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 quote of the book is the the one portion of the text I think really summarizes it. And I'm telling you, if you read this novel, the first hundred pages are littered with so much insight into life that you could pull so much out of it. Um, and in fact, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to choose two to talk about because I think that they speak so much about two different aspects of this novel. Um, the first is starts on page 44 through Dennis's perspective. And he and King writes, By the time I had the mounted tire back in my trunk and had paid the guy two bucks for the job... The early evening light had become the fading purple of late evening. Symbolic, keep that in mind. The shadow of each bush was long and velvety, and as I cruised slowly back up the street, I saw the day's last light streaming almost horizontally through the trash-littered space between the Arby's and the bowling alley. The light, so much flooding gold, was nearly terrible in its strange, unexpected beauty. I was surprised by a choking panic that climbed up in my throat like dry fire. It was the first time a feeling like that came over me that year, that long, strange year, but not the last. Yes, it's hard for me to explain or even to find. It had something to do with realizing that it was August 11th, 1978, that I was going to be a senior in high school next month, and that when school started again, it meant the end of a long, quiet phase of my life. I was getting ready to be a grown-up, and I saw that somehow, saw it for sure, for the first time in that lovely but somehow ancient spill of golden light flooding down the alleyway between a bowling alley and a roast beef joint. And I think I understood then what really scares people about growing up is that when you, you stop trying on the life mask and start trying on another one, if being a kid is about learning how to live, then being a grown-up is about learning how to die. And that, to me, that's just like, King can just drop the mic and walk off the stage with an insight like that. And again, this is a, this is a story about a killer car, and it shouldn't be as profound as it is. But argue, make an argument that that's not profound. 
I don't think that you can. The second one comes on page 91, and it's a bit more specific to um, the, the conflict of this, um, of this novel. And actually going back to that, that first quote, um, you know, clearly I had said, you know, the, the light is symbolic. The dying light is the dying light of, of his childhood. The, the golden light, of course, is um, it's, it, it's shining on this, this, last, this last moment that he has at the end of his summer, which in of itself represents the freedom that he has before the, the, the system and the machine of school takes over, prepares him for adulthood. And then he's into the world of adulthood where he has to prepare to die. It's just, it's so wonderfully constructed and it says so much about what's going on in this novel, about having to say goodbye to the life that that is and start to move into the life that will be. Okay, um, on page 91. Okay, um, so when talking to Roland LeBay's brother, um, he says, Son, you're probably too young to look for wisdom in anyone's words but your own. But I'll tell you this, love is the enemy. He nodded at me slowly. Yes, the poets continually and sometimes willfully mistake love. Love is the old slaughterer. Love is not blind. Love is a cannibal with extremely acute vision. Love is insectile. It is always hungry. What does it eat? I asked, not aware I was going to ask anything at all. Every part of me but my mouth thought the entire conversation insane. Friendship, George LeBay said. It eats friendship. If I were you, Dennis, I would now prepare for the worst. And of course, that is the, the, the central um, conflict in the story. So that, that just boils it down to the love between um, Arnie and Christine and how that love symbolizes the, the, the death of the, the friendship. So that's Christine. Um, I hope that you have enjoyed my my thoughts we're now well over an hour um and for dark tower fans please stick around after uh the music plays us out um as i will talk a little bit about uh how this could connect to the dark tower um in a way that i have never seen talked about before which doesn't mean that it hasn't happened um, or hasn't been talked about i've just never seen it before um, and in the meantime, uh, if you have any time on your hands, uh, feel free to like this um, podcast on iTunes um, or uh, write a review on iTunes or um, follow me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr um, or drop a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to share your thoughts on Christine or anything having to do with Stephen King. And stay tuned next week as I review uh, John Carpenter's adaptation of Christine um, before moving on to Pet Cemetery. So in the meantime, everyone, um, have a great week, and I'll see you all here. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.
Okay, everyone, welcome back. Um, so if you're sticking around, you are a fan of the Dark Tower and you want to hear what my thoughts are. Um, so the thoughts basically are have everything to do with the uh, uh, Hearts in Atlantis. So Hearts in Atlantis, um, again, if you are sticking around, I hope that you're a Dark Tower fan and, and you get this reference. If you have not finished the Dark Tower series, I would not tune in right now as I'm going to spoil events from a multitude of books. So be warned, spoilers are galore. Um, so in Hearts in Atlantis, the um, most famous story from it is Low Men in Yellow Coats and the adaptation of the... Um, of uh, Low Men in Yellow Coats is the Anthony Hopkins starring movie Hearts in Atlantis, uh, in which a character by the name of Ted Brodigan meets a young boy, and during the, the course of the novel, he is pursued by what are called low men in yellow coats. Um, and the, the low men have these cars who are alive, and they're, they're otherworldly creatures that are... Um, hiding in disguise as cars they're like um they're like transformers to be perfectly honest robots in disguise because they're not robots they're they're creatures and the low men themselves are are not human now keep in mind that the the name of these characters are low men as in low quality of character now here in christine we have a story about a sentient car who's um many times uh, referred to as being an animal um, who, like, her dashboard lights transform into eyes, which are very similar to what occurs in Low Men in Yellow Coats. Um, and most recently in the Marvel Comics adaptation, or not adaptation, but a reworking of the, um, the events of The Dark Tower, telling us a little bit of the backstory about Eddie Dean's life, in which he encounters one of those cars um, that, that kind of lunges for him and tries to bite him. Um... So these cars exist within the, the, the universe and multiverse of Stephen King. So what I'm hinting around at here is that Roland LeBay is a low character. All that's missing is a yellow coat. And more so, in this novel, Roland LeBay's brother, George, mentions how his mother referred to him as a changeling. Now... A changeling in folklore is a baby that's been replaced with an otherworldly being. So maybe King didn't intentionally mean to do this, but maybe this is, and of course we know that, that King's work is going to take on a meta metatextual element later on, so maybe he didn't have to know. <laughs> if the events of the Dark Tower are true, then maybe this is Stephen King's subconscious trying to warn us all of the low men in yellow coats, and he did so earlier in his career with Christine. So maybe, just maybe, Roland LeBay was switched out as a baby with one of the creatures that we know as the low men in the yellow coats. And he grew up thinking he was human, but clearly not. And at some point in his life, he met this car. And what if the car was just one of the cars from low men in yellow coats, watching over him and protecting him like a protective dog? You know, because it is a creature. So, you know, I mean, that's... I've never seen that theory discussed. Um, well, like, so like I said, doesn't mean that it hasn't. I've just never seen it. But it was one that kind of tickled my fancy, and it's one that I'm going to believe. So for all intents and purposes, in the eyes of, of this reviewer, 
uh, Roll in the Bay is a um, swapped out low man. Um, and in fact, maybe Roland had um, you know, some sort of psychic ability. And maybe the real Roland was toiling away um, trying to break the beams. Uh, so that that's gonna be that's gonna be my my story in my head. That's that's exactly what happened. And Christine is one of those otherworldly creatures, um, you know. And and we'll see uh, Christine's kin later on in Low Men in Yellow Coats. So that's all I got, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And like I said, uh, stick around next week as I review um, uh, Christine the the movie. In the meantime, um, have a great week, and I'll see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel. Stephen King cast.